Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made and rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to our second episode. So, Ben, what are we watching today? Well, it's pretty exciting. Today we are watching Der Student von Prague. Mm. Uh, and this is a film from 1913, and it's widely considered to be the first feature length horror film ever made. Um, It's also considered to be the first feature-length independent film ever made. Okay. So movies up to this point, even at this early stage, were largely made by movie studios. They weren't quite the same studios we know today, um, but they were made in that system, and this film was made entirely outside of that system. What's really exciting is that uh, this has been considered a lost film for many, many years, Um, And it was recently restored by the Munich Film Museum and put out on DVD by them last year. Perfect timing. Yeah, absolutely. This film was directed and also stars a German actor named Paul Wiegner. You have a little bit of experience with his work as well because you've seen a later movie of his, which is The Golem. Okay, yeah. Who was he in The Golem? He was the golem in The Golem. Ah, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, well, when you, you know, when, you're, when you direct in and star in your own movies, you give yourself the title roles, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, uh, last week we watched short films. Mm-hmm. So we're transitioning into the earliest feature films now. Uh, the first feature film ever made is generally considered to be a movie called The Story of the Kelly Gang from 1906 in Australia, and it was an hour long. Uh, And at the time, an hour long would be considered like, oh my god, I have to sit in this theater for so (laughs) long! My, My poor attention span. Flash forward to today, where the average movie's like two and a half hours, often are... Uh, part of a trilogy of movies that are three hours long. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, This film from 1913 is 88 minutes long, Hmm. um, so a little bit longer still. As I said, it's largely the product of Paolo Vigna, and Vigna was 39 years old when he made this movie, uh, and he actually went to school for law originally, uh, and he dropped out and became a stage actor, uh, and he actually studied under Max Reinhardt, Similarly to George Méliès, whose films we watched last week, uh, Vigna saw that film was a genre where he could take advantage of things like editing to create special effects that weren't possible on the stage, mm-hmm. um, especially for like fantasy-style stories. Um, so he really wanted to do this movie to take advantage of things like that. They based the plot of the film on Edgar Allan Poe's short story... William Wilson? I don't think I've ever read that one. I'm not too familiar with it either. Yeah. Um, But the other source for the film was Faust, which I am very familiar with. Yeah. I think the version that I have read, because there's a million versions of Faust, is the play. And what they really wanted to do was a lot of trick camera work that was done by a cinematographer named Guido Ziba, and he did uh, all of these camera effects for the film. Um, because Vigna had never directed a movie before, he was just a stage actor, he did hire an experienced film director to come in and co-direct with him, and that was this guy named Stellan Rui, and Rui was from Denmark, he was Danish, and he was jailed for being a homosexual, Mm. so he fled Denmark and came to Germany, where at the time, in pre-World War I, Germany. There was a lot more freedom for someone like him. Uh, he ended up serving in the German army in World War One and died in a French POW camp. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> what year is this? 1913? 1913, and the war would start the next year in mm. 1914. Like I said, this was an indie film made outside of the studio system, and it was advertised as the first film to portray, quote, 
great, serious, dramatic, and literary art on the screen, unquote. <laughs> did, they, did they not see Frankenstein? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that was an American film. <laughs> did, did they not see one of the Jekyll and Hyde's? That we saw. <laughs> I think I think they were they had a pretty. Um, they weren't as vigorous in their movie searching and watching as th- we are. I think they maybe had a bit more of a pretentious opinion of themselves. Ah. <laughs> they also intended it to have as few intertitles as possible because they wanted the movie to uh, stand on its own merits as uh, uh, visuals and so on. Show not tell. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I've never seen this movie. Uh, I don't think really anyone has for like a hundred years. Yeah. But I guess uh, while filming this movie on location in Prague, that's where uh, Paul Wigna first heard the legend of the golem. Mm. Um, because, of course, the golem is a, a Jewish legend from the city of Prague. And that's what inspired his later films, which you have seen. Yeah. Are we going to be watching the golem? Uh, we probably will see it uh, later on in this list. Yes. Cool. Um, so I won't talk too much about it right now, but it was very interesting in its use of special effects and how it was like a monster movie, but not scary. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important because it's a precursor to Frankenstein as a film in a lot of ways. Yeah. But yeah, this film, I don't really know what to expect, uh, because it's, it's been out of circulation for so long. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a big special thanks to the Munich Film Museum for putting so much work into restoring this so we could watch it and rank it. I don't know if they restored it solely for the purpose of this podcast, Sarah. I'm pretty sure they did. <laughs> so if this was just recently restored, where can folks find this? Um, well, like any film made before 1923, it is technically in the public domain. So probably the easiest way to watch it right now is on YouTube. Someone has put up the restored version on there. The picture quality is not fantastic, and the subtitles for the German intertitles are very large on the screen, but it is what it is. Um, The ideal way to see this right now is on DVD in the restored version, but right now that DVD is only available on special order from the Munich Film Museum, so you have to visit their website and order it directly from them. There are some other DVDs of this floating around, but they're of a 41-minute truncated poor quality print that had been floating around earlier before this restoration. Uh, So I would avoid those versions at all costs. How much of the poor quality on the YouTube version is just a result of the film being old, or is that because of, like... Whoever uploaded it, uploaded it in 360p, which would be, like, a sub-DVD quality resolution. Oh, that's Um, too bad. Yeah, so that that would be kind of the decision that causes that. But it's still like I said, better than watching it on a cheap DVD. Um, But definitely the best way to go about it would be to order the DVD directly. If someone were to order that because it's in Germany and get it shipped to North America, would there be weird region differences on DVDs? It would be important that when you order it, you check to see if they offered it as a Region 1 DVD, um, because, of course, a Region 2 DVD won't play here unless you have a region-free player. Uh, I don't know for sure which it is, but um, I'm certain that when you looked at their store, they would probably make a point of saying one way or the other. Cool. So yeah, with any old film like this, it's always important to kind of do your research first before you dive into finding a copy, unfortunately. Well, luckily we have you. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So if people want to watch along and come back, um, please do so. And uh, you'll hear a short musical interlude and then we'll be back to talk about the film. See you on the other side. And we're back from watching uh, The Student of Prague. Der Student von Prague. Yes, yes. From 1913. Yes. Um, The Student of Prague is about this student named Baldwin um, who is 
depressed, but also the world's best fencer. Well, he's the city of Prague's best fencer. Um, But I think the idea is that he's depressed because he's poor. He seems to be totally penniless, basically. Yeah. And he meets a traveler who's like, hey, I know how you can get money. Sign this contract and I will give you all the money in the world. I'll take whatever I want from your apartment. Okay, so we got to back up a little bit here. But, (laughs) uh, because you're rushing ahead a little bit. But yeah, so this guy... Uh, Scapinelli, uh, which is an Italian name, and Prague, um, at the time this movie was set, Prague was in the Austrian Empire, um, so, so he's a foreigner. Uh, he meets Baldwin, and he wants to know if Baldwin could maybe lend him a bit of money, and Baldwin's like, no, like, I'd have to marry, like, a super rich heiress to have money. Like, come into a bit of luck, is what he means to kind of say. As it just so happens, there's a super rich heiress who's gonna get married, um, and she's this countess named Margaret. She's engaged to be married to her cousin. Which, like, cousin marriages are pretty common in the aristocracy, but I guess the whole reason here is so that the family, like, the male family name stays in the family mm-hmm. to the next count or whatever. The point is, is that she doesn't like this guy at all. She's not into him. Yeah. Um, she says, I'll do what my father says, but I don't really like you. Right. So then... While Baldwin and Scapinelli are just kind of like walking along, they have a chance encounter with the Countess where she just like falls off her horse into a lake and Baldwin rescues her. Mm-hmm. And this is enough for the two of them to kind of fall in love. But Baldwin can't be with her because, you know, he's penniless and that's not how anything works. And that's sort of when Scapinelli shows up at his apartment like, hey man, I will give you a hundred thousand gold. Which, like, I have to assume is just an absurd amount of money in 18, 20 times. I mean, if someone came in here and tried to offer us that in exchange for anything in our apartment, I'd be like, yeah. Oh, for sure. But, like, it's (laughs) enough to, like, propel him into the aristocracy, right? Yeah. But, yeah, so he offers him 100,000 gold with a really great special effect of um, he pulls out, like, a purse and, like, empties it and just the coins just keep coming out forever. Yeah, and the paper money from his jacket, he's just, like, continually pulling it out as if it's, like, the the clown tissue. Right. Only they're not connected. It was yeah. really awesome. And the deal is that all Baldwin has to do is sign a contract where Scapinelli can take anything in his apartment. And guess what he takes? His soul! So this is, this is the thing I wasn't quite sure of. I'm not 100% sold on it being Baldwin's soul. No? Um... So what actually what we see happen in the movie is Baldwin's got like a big floor to ceiling mirror in his apartment and he's looking at himself and Scapinelli kind of gestures to the reflection and the reflection just straight up like comes out through the frame. Yeah, just comes out of the mirror. And I have to say that if there's a reason to see the student of Prague, it's these special effects with this double. They they must have had a bunch of different methods because it's not it's clearly not just split screen, and it's not just double exposure, and it's not just mats. It's got to be like a combination of all three because they're so well done. I mean, they are more well done than in more modern films where I've seen this effect. Yeah. If, if there was split screening, I couldn't tell where the split mm-hmm. was, and usually you can. Yeah, exactly. So then as Baldwin's reflection comes out of the, out of the mirror, he walks into the hallway and then just fades away mm-hmm. in, like, the smoothest fading away that I've <laughs> ever seen. Yeah. And then the magician of whatever, Scapinelli, goes to follow him, and then his fade is just insane because, like, you see his face fade away last and it turns into a skull for a split second, and Ben can attest to this. I was like, whoa, as it happened, as and we were watching it. And then as you see... Scapinelli fade away and walk away, he's carrying a scythe, like he's death. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty effectively spooky. And so, yeah, we kind of, because of the standard narrative around signing a deal with the devil, as well as the associations with reflections and mirrors, immediately we were like, oh, it's his soul. Because mm-hmm. you said, like, with vampires, they can't see their reflection, and that's because they don't have a soul. Yeah, exactly. So that would fit, like, a lot of traditional folklore. The reason why I'm not sold on it being his soul that he gives away is because the double for the rest of the film is 
doing all these evil things, and he's kind of heartless. You know, Baldwin is the one, he still wants to marry the Countess, he still feels things greatly, he feels regret and remorse and fear and terror and all these things that you wouldn't, like, like the double is the one that seems soulless. Mm. Um, So I sort of came to the conclusion, remembering that this is a German film, that his reflection is literally his reflection. Okay. He's literally the evil opposite uh, or to use the appropriate term, he's his doppelganger. And this is the doppelganger myth from German folklore. Okay, I would agree with that. Um, to kind of sum up the rest of the film, mm-hmm. doppelganger does a bunch of, like, <laughs> random evil stuff. Uh, ends up killing the Countess Margaret's um, fiancé, uh, even though... Baldwin said he wouldn't, but his double right, did. Right, right. So the, the deal here is that basically the, the fiancé finds out that Baldwin's trying to make a move on his girl and challenges him to a duel. And that's where this whole idea that Baldwin's the greatest fencer ever <laughs> comes in because the the dad who arranged the marriage like comes in and is like, hey, man, like please like don't kill this guy in this duel because I need him to carry on the family line and all these things. And Baldwin's like, yeah. And they shake on it. And then Baldwin leaves his house to like go to the duel where presumably he's still planning to fight, but just not kill the guy. And he runs into his doppelganger. And there's all these scenes in the movie where he bumps into the doppelganger kind of in like random locations <laughs> where the doppelganger just seems to kind of be trolling him. Yeah. Like just showing up like, like, hey, man. What are you going to do? Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> and so uh, he bumps into the doppelganger and the doppelganger's got his sword out and he looks at him and just wipes the blood off his sword because oh, he's so already killed this guy. So great. So, so well done. Yeah, so Baldwin gets blamed for it because, you know, a dude looking like Baldwin showed up and killed this guy, so now he can't he can't go see the Countess anymore. Yeah, but Baldwin says nuts to that <laughs> and decides to go see her because he's he's acting all depressed. He can't be happy, and he's like, no, 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 I need to go see her. And he keeps um, and the only person who will hang out with him because he's kind of persona non grata after committing murder is like his horrible doppelganger. Yeah, and he just shows up out of nowhere, out of shadows. It's fantastic. Um, so Baldwin goes to see Margaret, and they have, like, a loving embrace, and guess who shows up? His doppelganger. Oh, the scene is great, oh. because they're in Margaret's room, and she's got, like, a big vanity mirror, and they're making out on the couch or whatever, <laughs> and she just suddenly notices that Baldwin doesn't have a reflection, and just flips and, like, it's so well shot and so well done because they're both, like, looking in the mirror and there's no reflection and you can't see Baldwin. And then they kind of look up from the mirror and there's Baldwin's double, like, just standing in the corner just, of the room, just chilling. Just creeping. Yep. So, yeah, Margaret freaks out. Baldwin is freaking out. So he runs back to his place and he's like, hey, I, I don't know what else to do. He pulls out a gun and... Ben freaked out. He's like, whoa, dude, hold your horses. And the whole way he's running back to his place, oh, yeah. the entire way, everyone he meets is the double. Yeah. Like, he, he runs through the streets of Prague and every single person is his double. He, like, gets in a carriage for the, like, ah, just drive, carriage driver. And, like, the carriage drives him back to his place and he gets out of the carriage and the carriage driver was his double. <laughs> and, like, so great. everyone there. But, yeah, so he gets home and he pulls a gun to kill himself his doppelganger shows up again, and so Baldwin shoots the doppelganger, and it's like a jump cut or whatever, where suddenly the dude's gone. Uh, Baldwin's alone, and he thinks, oh, I've, I've won. He looks in a handheld mirror. We can't see it, but his reaction says he can see his reflection. Um, but then he notices, like, a hole in his jacket, and he falls over dead because he <laughs> shot himself. Yeah. And then... Fucking Scapinelli shows up. Hasn't been in the movie for like a good solid hour at yeah, this for point. Like two of the acts. Yes, of the four acts. And shows up and he's just like <laughs> rips up the contract and like has dances gone. away because yeah. he's Scapinelli dresses in a top hat and like a three piece suit and a cane <laughs> and he has like a like a pointy goatee beard and like a monocle. Like he's just a showman, clearly. Yeah. But yeah, and he just dances on Baldwin's grave and like, or not Baldwin's grave, Baldwin's body. And then just kind of dances out of the room. And then the <laughs> last shot of the movie 
is the the double, the doppelganger, like, sitting on top of Baldwin's grave. Mm-hmm. Great movie. Uh, throughout the whole movie, uh, we, okay, let's back up. Before the break, um, then you mentioned that Edgar Allan Poe's short story, William Wilson, mm-hmm. was, like, inspiration for this movie? One of the inspirations. I think this movie sort of takes a bunch of stuff and throws it in a pot. Yeah. The other thing that kept coming up, and the film um, quotes it twice by showing the actual poem, but it's this poem called The December Night by Alfred de Musset? Alfred de Musset, yeah. Yeah, French dude. And, yeah, I thought that was really nice. I couldn't find the whole poem online. Could you? Yeah, I found a copy online. It's really quite long. Like, it's significantly longer than what's in the movie, but... The verse that they quote in the movie is the second last verse. Mm. And all through the poem, the deal is that this guy keeps having encounters with someone who looks exactly like him, uh, but who keeps, like, screwing up his life, and his life is very sorrowful and full of bad luck, kind of like our bro Baldwin. And the poem, ha- the, the bit of the poem they quote in the film has the line about, you know, once you're dead, I'll be sitting on your grave and stuff, which happens in the movie. But then the verse that they don't quote, which is the last verse, reveals that this other self is a metaphor for solitude Mm. um, because all of his problems has been caused by himself and his loneliness. And I'm wondering, because they don't use that verse, whether that was, whether they didn't use that verse because it didn't work with their story or they didn't use that verse because they were assuming an audience would know the poem and know the implication of the whole thing. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. I I don't see that line really fitting in. I did look up the synopsis of Poe's William Wilson because I hadn't even heard of it. Mm. And so it's, again, a doppelganger, follows this dude around since he's a kid. Okay. And gradually becomes to look more and more like uh, the original guy. And he just shows up and actually tries to, the doppelganger tries to stop. The original dude from doing bad things. Oh, interesting. Um, and Guy throws a fit and kills his doppelganger and then realizes, oh, I've actually killed myself. Okay. So it has sort of the same ending. Yeah, but even it's kind if, of like an inverse of who's good and who's bad. Right. And then this version adds in the Faust thing. Yeah, with the magician Satan. Uh, yeah, Scapinelli. Scapinelli, who I was trying to figure out like what the motivation is. Because, like, I wasn't sure if Scapinelli was death or Satan. Because mm. he's got the, the hint of the scythe and the skull head. So I wasn't sure, like, okay, if he's death, like, is his motivation just to get Baldwin to die so that he can come and collect him? I guess there's some overlap. Because I was also thinking Satan, because that's your typical deal with the contract in folklore, is mm. it's Satan. And that still works because suicide is a, a mortal sin. It gets you sent to hell. Yeah. So the idea would be getting Baldwin to commit, driving him to commit suicide. So there's definitely the Faust thing in there with, you know, selling your soul to get this girl. Did you like the film? Because I really did. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I do have, I think, a central question that I think we have to address. Oh? Uh, which is, is this a horror film? I kept thinking about that, too. I kept wondering. So I made a list of what the fears were Mm. um because i really liked how when we were talking about those short films you were asking like what is this movie showing that we should be afraid of right so what i kind of come up with was i did like that the fear was not that the woman was in danger right yeah there isn't really (laughs) a damsel the doppelganger of baldwin never really threatens margaret he's more there to just troll baldwin yeah but it seemed to be Kind of similar to Jekyll and Hyde in not really being able to control yourself. Mm. And, like, the fear was, what will the double do in my place? Right. And also had a bit of a feeling of a monster movie because the doppelganger just kept showing up. Yeah, um, he's, he's kind of like... he's kind like of Jason. Right. Shows up. Right. Like, the, the kind of way that monsters in horror movies do now where, you, you know, a character walks down a hallway and turns a corner and suddenly... The monsters there, and they do that kind of gag with the doppelganger a lot in this film. And the doppelganger is very blank-faced and walks very slowly, and is you know kind of does the the Terminator thing of just <laughs> relentlessly coming after this guy. Mm-hmm. It also had a bit of a feeling of uh, Frankenstein, um, in the sense that 
you know, you have this mistake that you make in college, and it haunts you through your life, oh. and eventually it comes in and gets you. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, I can see that. Yeah. I don't, it's obviously not a direct influence, but I think there's something there. I mean, there's more of a conversation almost with the Thomas Edison Frankenstein. Mm-hmm, Because yeah. you've, got, you've got the mirror and the weird, like, good versus evil version of the same guy thing going on. Yeah, that one... That Frankenstein was done in the States. Yeah, about uh, three years earlier. Do you think a director would have seen it? Um, maybe. I don't know enough about... Film distribution? Right. <laughs> Turn of the century film distribution? <laughs> right. Or, like, just how much familiarity... What films Vigna had familiarity with when he made this. Because I know he made his transition from stage to film. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, he was in Max Reinhardt's company, and Reinhardt was very interested in film as a medium as well, so he might have been encouraged by his teacher to kind of move into it. I'm not 100% sure on his biographical details, but mm-hmm. I did sense that there was a bit of conversation happening between these two films. Yeah. Yeah, Wigner is pretty good in this. I really liked him in this. I've seen, we talked before the break that we've seen his other film, The Golem, He's much better in this. Yeah, I did. But that might be because he doesn't get to do much in The Golem. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of him in The Golem, but in this I really liked him. He did a lot of cool stuff. He is about 20 years too old for the role he's playing. Um, He was 39, and he's playing a college student here. And um, his co-star, the actress playing uh, Margit, is uh, Greta Berger. And she was 30 years old playing the Countess. So another, like, solid 10 to 15 years too old for the role she's playing because she's supposed to be, like, a noble woman of marriageable <laughs> age, right? I did appreciate that our two lovebirds were similar in age versus what you see now where, like, the guy can be up to 40 to 50 years of age and the girl will be, like, 20. Right. It's still just... It is noticeable for both of them yeah. watching the film that they're too old for these roles. But uh, that's sort of almost like a convention of stage acting very commonly. And I'm not sure if people just realized, you know, people hadn't realized that you couldn't get away with that in film yet. Uh, film kind of almost imposes more realism on things. Whereas on the stage, like, you see 40-year-old actors and actresses being Romeo and Juliet all the time. Yeah. Right? I wasn't sure about some of the Jewish imagery in this movie. So I, 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 I was thinking about that because mm. in visuals, Scapinelli came across Jewish to me. And I didn't know why. Okay. Because he doesn't have a lot of the standard Semitic tells. Yeah. Um, he's more of a kind of a vaudevillian figure. Um, his name isn't Jewish at all. It's Northern Italy. And I wasn't sure if it was just because his character archetype in this movie has in subsequent years often been a character archetype that's a Jewish character. He has a bit of Shylock in him. He has a bit of Svengali in him. But I don't think in this movie he's a Jewish archetype. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm just projecting from other versions of that character that I've seen? I think the film is blurring the line between Jewish person and foreigner. I think it is much more... You can definitely make more of a case that it's a film that has a bias against foreigners because, you know, while there is some Jewish content in the film because it takes place in Prague and at one point Baldwin arranges to meet Margaret in the Jewish cemetery in Prague because it's the only place like no one in the city goes. <laughs> the characters don't strike me as Jewish, but there are two characters in the film who do have a sense of the the shifty foreigner that you can't trust. Cuz you have um Scapinelli and then you have Ladushka, a character I have we haven't really mentioned yet. Yeah, so to explain who Ladushka is, she is Kind of a a girl who hangs out with all of the college students, and she has a big crush on Baldwin, um, and she continues to kind of follow him even after he becomes more of an aristocrat. Mm -hmm. An aristocrat. (laughs) Um, First, she's just kind of a dancer around all these college students, and then she's uh, a flower girl, so selling flowers to Baldwin. Um, But she keeps, like, 
sneaking around and following Baldwin, but more following Market? Well, eventually, like, she starts following Baldwin, and then when it becomes clear that Baldwin is after Margaret, she starts following Margaret, and then, you know, her plot role is that she's the one who tells Margaret's fiancé that Baldwin is is moving in on his territory. I thought it was really interesting that, to kind of diverge from our discussion point there for a minute... So as she's sneaking around, she's not good at sneaking around. Yeah, she's really like, obvious. Why Why aren't people seeing her? And so it made me wonder, like, like I'm not going to say, oh, this movie's making a point about how the poor are invisible, but it just struck me as something kind of weird. Yeah, there are scenes where she is supposedly sneaking around, but characters who don't see her are looking right at her. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, it's you almost have to wonder if there's something being said about that. But her whole deal is, yeah, she wants Baldwin. Baldwin wants Margaret. So she kind of sells Baldwin out because she thinks that this will get her back in Baldwin's good graces, and it doesn't. Then she kind of exits the picture. Uh, She's she's... not really important to the end of the film. Yeah. So the reason why we were saying that she's poor is because the, the film doesn't really explain who she is or what she does, but her costuming codes her. Mm-hmm. She's in, uh, she, you know, she has a scarf over her hair. Her dress is in patches. Her slip is out from underneath her dress. Yeah, and she walks around barefoot everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I, I wasn't, from her name, like, Ladushka is Slavic. Her costuming, I wasn't 100% sure because, like, basically the film's either coding her as poor or coding her as Roma. Mm-hmm. So, again, she, with Scapinelli, kind of falls into this coded message of the untrustworthy foreigner. Yeah. This kind of ties in with the the other Jewish imagery with the cemetery. Because the reason why I think the film's trying to lump these foreigners in with Jewish imagery or anything like that is because when we go to see the Jewish cemetery, Scapinelli's just hanging out there. Right. Um, and Ladushka also seems to have a lot of familiarity with where to go. Mm-hmm. And Margaret, when she goes to the Jewish cemetery to meet Baldwin, she passes Scapinelli, and when she sees him, she uh, genuflects. She makes the sign of the cross mm-hmm. um, in front of him to kind of ward him off, which is weird. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not weird if he's Satan. But he's not. <laughs> he's disguised. Yeah. And it, it also had me thinking about, like... This idea of, like, exotic otherness. Because that's the only other reason I could think of why, oh, let's go to this Jewish cemetery. And the way that the camera was positioned, you could see the tombstones with Hebrew written on them. Mm-hmm. And it, I feel like it was done to make it feel like a known, otherworldly place that hap- happens to be located inside the city. Right. Um, that no one really goes. And yeah. Just kind of, like, has some mis- mystery mm-hmm. to it. Um, and that was a little... So I want to come back for a moment to the discussion of is this a horror film? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, what I found interesting is right off the bat, the movie labels itself. Mm-hmm. It says a romance drama in four acts. So what do you think is the more accurate label? Is it a horror film or is it a romance drama? Was, was horror as a genre existing at the time? That's a great question because, I mean, you had, I think you had, you know, you had horror um, novels, certainly. You know, Dracula had come out and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if there was as much seen as a difference between a horror and a thriller. You know, Dracula might have been labeled a supernatural thriller at the time. But certainly you had ghost stories. And I will say... That when this movie ended, with its little ironic ending of Baldwin having killed himself and Scapinelli showing up to collect on his deal and this kind of stuff, it reminded me a lot of, like, a campfire ghost story. Mm-hmm. And it had that feel of creepy eeriness that you get from those stories, where his double's always there. And every scene with the double is eerie and creepy and unsettling. But every scene without the double, and I mean, there's more scenes with the double as the film goes on. You know, he's very occasional early on, and then it it picks up the pace. But early on, the film totally is a romance drama. It's 
this kid and this countess and this baron and they're rich and they go to balls and they arrange for duels and you know this kind of stuff and I almost wonder if I wonder if it's kind of a bait and switch. I would agree that it's a bait and switch, but done purposefully. Yes. Um, because a lot of gothic horror stuff uh, from like the 1800s that I've read, it starts out like that too. Some of those stories and novels will get creepy right away, but often it's just kind of like, oh yeah, it's just like a happy normal family doing whatever, or let's go on vacation, or it happens to be this creepy castle, but I'm sure it's fine, but <laughs> it's that howling out there. Right. Things get progressively more creepy as they go on, um, and that would definitely fit this movie. Yeah, I think that, you know, the scenes where he the double is first created... You know, then Baldwin goes to a ball, and he does dancing, and they do fancy things, and then the double shows up again. It's like, oh. And then Baldwin goes on a date, and whatever. And, like, <laughs> so the the film kind of layers it in slowly and then brings it in more and more and ramps up the pace until you get to this ending where he kills himself. And I thought that the way of pacing that was really effective. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if it's a ghost story from this time period, too, from this you know, 1913, I wonder, is there a moral we can draw from this story? Like, what's the philosophical statement being made here? Um, you know, what does the, the double represent? Uh, is he Baldwin's evil side? You know, what did Baldwin do to deserve this? Usually when you get these deal with the devil stories, you know, the guy who makes the deal is some arrogant schmuck who's going to be taught an ironic lesson. Baldwin wasn't an arrogant schmuck. He was a down-on-his-luck kid who just wanted to get with the love of his life, and he needed money to do that, you know? So I I wondered, you know, is it just is, is the moral just beware of foreigners, or is there anything else going on here? I think it's just the fear of other, you know, okay. other as in those foreigners or anything like that, or what your other self will do. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can totally buy that. It's just his doubleganger is a personified fear of the other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I'll totally buy that. And I think that ties into with why people seem to avoid or just not see Ladushka. Mm. Because, like, yeah, she seems to have grown up in Prague or, like, is pretty familiar with the city, but everyone is just kind of, like, cringing away from her. Even the fiancé, when she goes to be like, hey, someone's, someone's getting your girl. Um, everyone just kind of doesn't want to be around her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think fear of the other. And it's, it's sort of an inevitable fear. You know, everything in the movie is like clockwork. There's this feeling of inescapable doom. Everything grinds to this inevitable conclusion. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, yeah, I think I'd, I'd agree that, that it's a horror film. Yeah. And I think it's a really well-made film, definitely with the special effects. But I kept thinking, so when we went to start this, it's four acts, it's 80-ish minutes, mm-hmm. and we figured that each act is like two film reels. Right. We had watched a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was also two reels, and it was like pulling hair because it just took <laughs> so long and was so repetitive. So going into this movie, I was a little apprehensive, but it kept me going. And I don't know if that's because I didn't know the story or if it was just, it was really well paced. It was a really well done movie. And pacing is really tough with silent films a lot of the time. I mean, I watch silent films that I know are classics and the pacing will feel sluggish because silent films just kind of tend to feel slower than regular films. But this movie, which is 88 minutes... Just, you know, which is, it's four times the length of that Dr. Jekyll movie we watched. It just goes along. It clips along at a steady beat and feels, the pacing is amazing. It's It was really great. I think um, in terms of a, a filmmaking perspective, you know, I've talked about how much I liked the effects and how well the effects were done. We still don't see many types of shot that aren't, Um, like a wide master shot. Pretty much every scene is shot on a flat, like a stage, a proscenium style, like a lot of these early films. I didn't notice a single close-up in the whole movie. Well, except for maybe when it's on the poem. 
Sure, that was more of an inner title. Oh, okay. Right? But, um, yeah, I mean, the location shooting in Prague was great. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's really the effects photography that's amazing more than anything else, which the rest of it's much more Mm stage-like. I mean, I can't really fault it for that because um, I don't know if we've already talked about this, but so Paul Wegner... Um, who started as Baldwin, he was directing this, and this is his first time directing it, or directing... Anything. Anything. So he brought on another director to help him out with that. Um, and so because it was, like, his first time, and there's kind of this apprentice relationship with this experienced guy, I wonder if they were going for something a, a little more basic, because mm-hmm. it's his first movie. Yeah, and I mean, he came from stage acting, right? So mm-hmm. it makes sense that the blocking is very theater-like. Yeah, um, versus like in The Golem, mm-hmm. where I, I don't know if he directed that as well. Yes. Okay, he did. It had a lot more different kinds of shots. Like the one that I just remember in my head is like a close-up on the Golem's face when he wakes up. Right. So I, I think that the basicness of the shots are based on his you know, he He's trying out something new. Sure. I have a, I have a question for you okay. uh, that I wanted to, to kind of discuss. Because as much as I liked this film and I thought that it was very effective, there's all this talk of Baldwin being the best fencer in the city. And the, in the story, the key moment that signals the shift in the story you know, from the first half that's a bit more lighthearted, that's the romance drama, and the second half that's the horror film, is Baldwin's double killing this romantic rival in the duel. And we never see the duel. Mm -hmm. This big, important moment in the story that pays off all this stuff about sword fighting, where the double commits the act of murder that, you know, makes him the villain of the tale... And we never see it. Instead, we just see Baldwin, like, getting up in the morning to go to the duel. And as I kind of said earlier, he bumps into the double and it's already happened. And I wanted to know what you kind of thought about that choice. It made it... It made it more dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we see him walking off and then we ha- happen into the doppelganger. And we're not really sure what's going on. Like, we're surprised because we haven't seen him all movie up to this point. Um, and then when he wipes off his blade, it's so subtle and sinister. Mm. And he still has that blank expression on his face, but mm. he still, he looks over at Baldwin and just, you know, as he wipes his blade. And it really made it it more powerful than I think if we had seen, quote unquote, Baldwin right. <laughs> stab the dude and then walk off and then bump into Baldwin. Because we would just think, oh, uh... Baldwin must have gone back on his promise. Oh, wait, no, that's the double. This way, we see it from Baldwin's perspective. And, like, that fear of, like, what else has this double done that we have not seen? Mm. Right, so the the absence of what we don't know and the uncertainty is what gives us the fear here, and that's why it's effective. Yeah. I think think you're probably right then. I wasn't sure if it was an absence in the film, you know, something where... We should have seen that, but I think, I think the way that you explain it, I think you're you're totally on uh, on the ball with that. You thought maybe um, the fight scene was uh, cut or lost during the. the... No, no, I, I think it was a deliberate choice. The okay. way the rest of the film was made, it seems like a deliberate choice. I just wasn't sure if it was the right kind of choice because it seems like such a pivotal moment not mm-hmm. to show. But the way you're explaining it makes me believe that, no, it was indeed the right choice. Yeah, and I think it really solidifies the fear of the other as what we're supposed to be afraid of here. Mm-hmm. That fear of the, you know, the uncertainty of what has this guy done in my name mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I would agree. Do we have anything else to say about this uh, movie? No, not really anything. Uh, I just wanted to add that the guy playing Scaffinelli, I forgot to write down the actor's name. Oh, but it's uh, it's uh, John Gotowit. He was great. Yeah, the physicality s- he brought to the role, like he's not like crouching, <laughs> but he's like I don't know, he's like prancing but still walking. I don't know. He he was he his acting was 
fantastic. Yeah, he stole the show. He was definitely like fun and entertaining in every scene that he he was in. Yeah, he was the standout of the cast for me. Um, he was just a whole lot of fun. I mean, uh, Vigna is good as well as Baldwin, but uh, yeah, uh, Gotwit as Scapinelli is fantastic. Yeah. Other than that, I'm I'm happy with where we're at. Sure. Uh, well, then let's uh, let's rank it. All right. So we are currently sitting at nine films on the list, and the number one film on the list right now is The Sealed Room by D.W. Griffith. Right. So, even though it's still, like, our second episode, just to remind listeners, The Sealed Room was um, the aristocratic setting, uh, again, based on Edgar Allan Poe. Um, Again, only took the method of murder from Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) It's actually kind of very oddly comparable to this movie, because you've got... The aristocratic setting, you've got the method of murder from Edgar Allan Poe, you've got um, the love triangle that's the sort of crux of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the horror film disguised as a romantic drama. Yeah. So which was the more effective then, and, and, and specifically as a horror film? Oh, that's true. Because we, we agreed that The Sealed Room was considered a horror movie and deserved the number one spot at the end of episode one because it showed you these two people suffocating in the sealed room and made the audience um, have to watch in horror as it happened mm-hmm. and become accomplices or voyeurs to this crime. Mm-hmm. Huh. I, I think Der Student von Prague goes above it, mm-hmm. above the sealed room, because while I think the sealed room had more of a, your heart's kind of caught in your chest kind of horror, mm. it is shorter, so that would explain that. Der Student von Prague, it, it still gave me those moments, but it also gave me those feelings of like, oh shit, it's death, or right. like, whoa, his face went into a skull, or whoa, the doppelganger's right there, and just... Um, that feeling of, I guess, not quite, but almost like jump scares. He, Wigner figures out that he can do the kinds of dissolves and trick edits and trick photography that Melies did, and just by changing the pace of them, make them go from being comic moments of, wow, did you see that, to terrifying moments of, wow, did you see that. Mm-hmm. You know, where you're, you're turning the other person going like, oh my god. You know, and you're no longer doing it because you're amused, but because you're terrified. And he does it just by changing the pace of them just enough. Yeah. Um, where things aren't coming at you quickly and all of a sudden, but rather at a kind of deliberate pace. And again, to compare the sealed room, which was very... There's no monster. Mm-hmm. It's the king commits a murder that is horrible. Mm-hmm. Versus this, where there's that supernatural element... But there's still that feeling of there's a human element to everything. Yeah, because the monster is him. Yeah. Right? So... I think this, because we're, we're doing these chronologically, this seems like a very logical next step for this genre because we've gone from these shorts that are just like fantasy, really, mm-hmm. uh, these demons and devils dancing around to things that are a bit more like a little spooky... And then Frankenstein, where it was kind of more of a monster, to the sealed room, where it was like a human crime, to Jekyll and Hyde, where the monster is you and still kind of human, but this seems like a very logical next step. Yeah, we're, we're exploring a lot of the same themes in these films about, you know, the evil within man and stuff like that. I think the thing that struck me about this movie was that there were moments with the doppelganger that kind of chilled me and spooked mm. me out and freaked me out and were, were effectively chilling. And there's a lot of horror movies, old horror movies, where I intellectually understand that they're scary and I understand intellectually that an audience of the time found them frightening, but my modern viewing brain can't make them scary for me. It's just an interesting story happening on the screen, a lot of times with great performances and great cinematography, but I'm never scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie's from 1913, and there were moments that made me go like, ugh, you know, and shudder a bit. So I think that speaks a lot in its favor as a horror film. Yeah. 
So would you agree that it takes the number one spot? Yeah, I think coming in at the new number one is uh, Der Student von Prague from 1913 by Paul Wigner. Excellent. I 100% agree. All right, so that gives us a top ten now, um, followed by The Sealed Room, Frankenstein, the 1912 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the 1913 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, <laughs> uh, The Infernal Cauldron, The Haunted Curiosity Shop, The Monster, The Devil's Mansion, and at the bottom of the list, uh, The Haunted Castle. Um, <laughs> and probably after this episode, I will stop listing the whole list at the end of every episode, but I wanted to do it there because we got a top ten now. We got top ten. All right, cool. So next week... We are going to be looking at another feature film mm. uh, by a director who we've already seen a short from. Oh. And this is D.W. Griffith's The Avenging Conscience, uh, an American feature-length horror film from the director who, two years after this, would bring us Birth of a Nation. Great. I love, love the melodrama in his movies. Yeah, I, I think you're going to get a lot more of that. <laughs> um, this is also another one that takes inspiration from Edgar Allan Poe. But not actually, again, not actually based on Poe. Just... Inspiration. Yes. Which which Poe? Uh, we'll find out next week. Ah. Keep them in suspense, eh? Yes. <laughs> of course, I meant to do that. <laughs> All right, thanks everyone for tuning in for our second episode of the Scream Scene Horror Podcast. Um, If you would like to check out the existing list with our top 10 picks, you can check out screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can find previous episodes there, as well as an ask box if you would like to suggest any films for us to watch, or if you would like to submit an appeal. Um, Maybe you disagree that the student of Prague should be at the number one spot. I would vehemently disagree, but you are free to appeal. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Um, you can also get in touch with us through our email. Podcast at gmail.com. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.